Let me clarify two things before we start. Uh, if you filled out that connection card, if you're a first-time guest, you'll get the Scooter's gift card. Um, it, I, it sounded to me like everybody was going to get one. This isn't Oprah, so just the first-time guest. But we're happy to do it. And the other thing I want to point out is, kids, uh, now is the time to start filling that sermon, sermon thing out, the sermon notes out. If you want to get a prize, it's different than it was before. We've got a new one in there. So it's fun. And if you need help figuring out how to do that, you can look at your parents because they might be taking notes. And parents, if you need help learning how or people, adults, if you need help learning, look at the kids because they're drawing pictures and doing some pretty cool stuff. So you can get creative. I want to, we're, we're in Galatians 3, so I'm going to ask you to open up to Galatians 3 or find it however you're reading it this morning uh, so you can follow along. We'll kind of pick out a couple verses in there that are important to our, our purposes this morning as we understand that. Um, <clears throat> and I want to point out a couple truths this morning that are absolutely true, but sometimes the way that we hear them in our day and age, they come across as half-truths if we're not careful. So I want to state these two truths, and then we'll get into Galatians with them. The first truth that is completely true is that we are all created in God's image. Absolutely true. Imago Dei, that's the fancy Latin term that gets used in theological circles, image of God. Uh, This is foundational to everything we believe and everything we do and and, um, our understanding of the importance of human life and why we treat each other the way we do, that sort of thing, and to actually uh, then desecrate another human being is to desecrate the image of God. Uh, So you're committing treason against God, essentially. Um, That's an important truth. The second truth uh, that comes right behind it is that God loves you, and God loves you even right now, in this room, in this place. And if you look back all the way at the beginning— beyond Abraham that we heard this morning, go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and you recognize what God gave to Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, loved by God, as they were in the Garden of Eden. God gave them an awful lot of good things. God gave them freedom. Freedom always comes with boundaries. God gave them freedom with those boundaries you would expect. Don't eat off that one tree in the garden. We, of course, know how that story ends. Don't eat off of that. But he gave them all this freedom. God gave Adam and Eve meaningful work. Be fruitful and multiply. It's hard to get more meaningful than that work, actually, when you get down to it. God gave them the work of actually caring for what he's created. They were supposed to be gardeners for life. How glorious is that? God gave them authority. He says, not only just as I care for you, I want you to care for this, and not only do I want you to care for what I've created, I want you to name it so that you know it. I give you that authority over what I've created to care for it. God gave them authentic, true relationships with one another and with God. Sort of these literally naked relationships is what they had with one another and with God. And if you look, you can see that because God gives them these tasks, God didn't create them with nothing to grow into. God had something in store for them to become still. They were still supposed to do something. God had more in store for Adam and Eve, and that's important to recognize. So it's, it's absolutely true that we can recognize from the beginning even until now, we are absolutely created in God's image. That's important. It's important to recognize that God loves us, and as Romans points out, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's love as much as it can be uh, exemplified and shown. 
God loves us even in a sinful state. Paul in Galatians 3 points back to some of this creation in a very quick and simple way. If you go to Galatians 3.28, one of the most famous verses I think we run into, particularly in Galatians, where he says, there is neither, this is in Christ or with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. The way that's phrased is to point back to Genesis. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying there's no distinctions there when he says that. But I want to point out, he's also not just talking about everybody created in God's image. He's saying, these are the redeemed who live this way. These are the redeemed who experience this. So we don't want to simply hear that God loves you, God does. We need to hear that. It's fully expressed through Jesus Christ. But where this can be deceiving and a half-truth sometimes is we'll hear, I'm created in God's image, God loves me, good, that means I don't need to change a thing. But that's not the message. It's never been the message. It's not been the message from the beginning. It's not the message here. If you go back just a couple verses to verse 3, 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Let's hear this clearly then. Your existence doesn't make you a child of God. Faith in Jesus Christ makes you a child of God. That's a big distinction that we need to understand if we're going to understand what Paul is saying from this point on in the book of Galatians. Let's think through a little bit of, of what it is that, that being a child of God looks like then. Um, a professor I didn't actually have years ago, but I, I got to hear a number of times when I was in graduate school, who was an Alberta farmer, she was talking about living life on the farm and the community and, and all that was involved in that. And she pointed out, she said, you know, we have our, our family, people who are biologically born into it, and then we have people who we kind of bring in along the way that become family, our friends and neighbors that live close. And she said, you, can, you know the distinction of when you're family, when you're over at our house and we pull out leftovers and eat them together. Right? We didn't create something special for this moment. You're family because we're eating leftovers together. And I would suggest that actually being a child of God is like that with God. You are, you are creating that relationship close enough that you can eat leftovers with God. You're that comfortable. You're part of the family. And that's an important thing to understand. Faith in Jesus Christ makes you a child of God. It's through Jesus that that original freedom of Eden, that original relationship with God from the beginning, is restored to put it in the terms that Paul kind of uses, it's justified. It's put to right where it was wrong before. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3 and beyond this, he says, don't be deceived by anything less than this kind of freedom. It's redemption. That's what we need to recognize. Now, Paul's very serious about this, because if you look at the beginning of, of verse 3, imagine this. Um, imagine that, you know, when the new year comes, I'll probably write a letter that goes into our annual meeting packet, as I do every year. We get our ministry reports, we get the budget that we'll, we'll vote on. And imagine, if you will, that I wrote that, and I started with, you foolish first covenanters, who's deceived you? Would you like that? Probably not, right? That's what Paul says, though. 
Did you notice that he's writing a letter to the church? He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's deceived you? Paul is very serious about what he's saying here. And we can see that the background of this, you can get it through the, the actual text as you read through it. You can look at Acts 13 and 14. You get the story as well. Some what we refer to as Judaizers had come and they said, you know what, these new Gentile believers need to be circumcised. Is basically what he's saying. And, and uh, Paul's going to have some pretty fierce words for that even as we go on. He's just getting started really in chapter 3. They've, they've come in and they're basically advocating a Jesus plus religion. But by saying that Jesus plus, they actually minimize the work of Jesus Christ. And we can understand maybe how, how this works out. There are um, religious groups that, that will sometimes add to the work of Jesus. The one that comes to mind for me is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also formerly known as the Mormons, who, who say, you know, the work of Jesus Christ wasn't enough. We have to do some work in addition to earn our salvation. And then they add some books to it as well. That's Jesus Plus, where it seems like it elevates it, but actually it minimizes what Jesus did. And it's, it's wrong. Or you can see even the days after the New Testament, there was a thing called Gnosticism that came out where there was kind of like there's you garden variety Christians and then there's the ones that have this special knowledge. They're the ones that are really saved and going to elevate sort of the enlightened ones. There's people who will always try and add to what Jesus has already done. Paul's saying we don't need to add to what Jesus has already done. Jesus has actually fulfilled and completed something. By adding, we're saying Jesus' work is insufficient for what God is trying to do. And you can see Paul then asks this question, chapter 3, verse 2. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Now, classic Paul, I don't think he just wants to learn one thing because he asks like six questions through this, but he says, I would just like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? It's really a relational question when you get down to it of being made right with God. He's, he's asking a justification question. What actually justifies you with God? And we already kind of gave some basic understanding to what justification is. It's something being made right, but more specifically justification when it comes to our relationship with God is our sin being forgiven and then being put in right relationship with God because of that. And it's because of the work of Jesus Christ. So it, it goes back again to creation. It's what was intended. It's creation being made right again in full freedom, love, and the fullness of God's creation with God in that relationship and with humanity as it was supposed to be and with the creation itself. There's going to be no enmity between those things anymore because of the redemption. That's what it looks like. He says, what caused that? Is it the works of the law or is it faith that, that actually allows you to step into that? And he goes even further. He's making this argument here. Verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Scripture foresaw what God, that God would justify the Gentiles, these would be people who are not Jewish, the Gentiles by faith, and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, Abraham being the superstar, as it were. He says the Gentiles are justified by faith, not by circumcision. 
And that was always the plan. We heard from Genesis this morning that through Abraham, God was going to bless everyone. That was the way, that was the delivery system to teach who God was and bring people to God's presence. And that restored relationship was through Israel and through Abraham's seed. But you can see also, Paul points out, Abraham was also justified by faith, not the law. And I'm not saying that the law is useless, nor is Paul saying that. It has a function, and we have to understand that. Because Paul continues on then, in verses 13 and 14, which is our key this morning. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So we need to understand the curse of the law, and this doesn't say that the law is useless or has no function. Paul's not saying that. The law was important. The law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so it's very important. And you would find that there are few throughout the Old Testament period particularly who would ever have claimed that they could have been made righteous by following the law. They knew they were going to fall short regularly. That's why the sacrificial system was there. You do have some who might claim differently, but generally speaking, it's the sacrificial system shows that we're not going to match up. We're not going to make it, but God made a way so that mercy is there, so that we can, things can be atoned and put right again at least temporarily. And we should recognize that the law taught some important things then. The law taught righteousness and holiness. The law taught what it means and what it's supposed to look like in human terms to walk with God. And the law taught who God is. That's what holiness is. It's teaching those things. And then, of course, to live under the curse of the law, Paul's saying, but it also reveals the inability to fully live as righteous and holy without God. It's teaching both of those things. And so, in order to release us from the punishment that would come from not following the law, death ultimately, Jesus became the curse for us. One way I I think it's good to think about the function of the law is, uh, you know, we have our youngest of three is now going to first grade, and somebody's pointed out this important distinction between first grade and third grade, which are kind of pivotal elementary school grades. Uh, They enter first grade, and, you know, they're still working on the mechanics of learning to read and decoding words and all that kind of stuff that goes in there. And so they're able to kind of understand what the words say, but they're not getting a lot out of it necessarily. They're getting something out of it, but they're figuring out how to read the words. When they get to third grade, that's a pivotal point now where they're not learning to read, they're reading to learn, right? They're doing something different with what they've been working on for a number of years to get to that point. And I think there's something important to recognize about the law's function. It is teaching who God is. It is teaching what righteousness is. And people know that they're not going to match up completely to the law. But it gives meaning to who God is and what God has in mind so that when Jesus comes, he can be uh, the sacrifice, that final atonement, so that we can be made holy, so that we can be made righteous. He redeemed us, and there's no possible way we could have redeemed ourselves. He did the work. That's what Paul is arguing. We couldn't do that. And now the work is completed 
We need to take hold of that. And, and we want to, there's a little stronger language even in there than we might recognize. Verse 14 uh, kind of implies that word redeemed. It's not actually there in the original, but back in verse 13, redeemed is there, and that word for redeemed that's there actually more strongly is ransomed in this case. That is the price paid for someone who is kidnapped or more likely, usually, usually how it was used in Paul's day, somebody who's been in slavery and then the price of their manumission to give them the certificate that they're now free. They're, they've been purchased out of that slavery system. See, Jesus did the work, Paul is telling us. He ransomed us so that we get our certificate of freedom. That's what Jesus has done. He redeemed us. Jesus did the work, so you don't need to do it anymore. Now, living into that, Paul will go on in verse 4, and we're going to get into chapter 4, excuse me, and we're going to get into that next week. But he's talking about if you then become a child of God because you're redeemed, then you live as an heir of the child. You're the people who eat leftovers with God is what, what that really means. You've had that kind of relationship. You're no longer a slave who doesn't have the rights as a child. You have the rights of being a child, and so you have to begin to live into that. Um, I've had some conversations with our uh, oldest, who's uh, 12, about the concept of adolescence. I'm not really a fan of that word. Um, I'm not really a fan of it because if you go back historically, what two distinctions did we actually have to humans as far as age distinctions? Children and adults. And we start making up terms along the way to try and describe things. That might be fine, but then we start doing things with uh, some of those distinctions that I think we ought not do. So, for instance, when people hit adolescence, we kind of have this phase where we give them a lot of freedom without a lot of responsibility. That's not how we've historically done it. All too often, we can give them the credit card without the, the need to pay it or the car without any responsibility for what they do with it or any of those kinds of things. They have so much freedom if we're not careful. And Paul's saying, you don't have that. You don't have unlimited freedom to do whatever it is you want. God's growing you up as his child to be righteous and holy. That's what God is doing. This freedom has boundaries, but it's the right kind. Maybe to put it a different way, um, when I was in my first year of college, uh, I was playing in a garage band, basically. um, And the final year, it was a Bible college, um, the final not year, final weeks of college, we got to go spread out this school and go do ministry in different parts of, we were in Canada, so different parts of Canada. I ended up going to the mountains of British Columbia to the small town of Creston, and they sent the whole band. So you've got uh, this, this garage band group of guys we were supposed to play at a high school, and we got put up in this bed and breakfast, super nice place, in the mountains of British Columbia. We arrived at like 6.30, 7 at night, and uh, the owner's husband and wife were like, well, we've got to go out for a couple hours. Um, here's, you know, where the light switches are, where your rooms are. Here's the remote control. This is how you turn on the TV. And here's a tray of Rice Krispie treats. They should be gone when we come back. This is a good life, right? I mean, this is a really good deal. And sometimes I think if we're, we're not careful when we think about freedom, that's kind of what we think God is going to give us. Whatever we want. Just eat the Rice Krispie treats. Give me what I want tomorrow. I just want to sit and I just want to enjoy and God will give us those things, but God is actually growing us up if we're children of God to become something, to be heirs to all that he has in store, not just to have unbounded freedom to make ourselves God again, but to live as the redeemed. Galatians 3.11, 
Paul tells us uh, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Why? Because the righteous will live by faith. If you have trouble with that word faith, substitute trust, because that's all it is. Those who are children of God, the redeemed, are going to live and trust their Savior. And they're going to live like Him, because they're being made to live that way as the redeemed. So questions we can ask if we're going to consider what it means to be the redeemed, as Paul's talked about this promise, which we'll get into later, but to live as the redeemed, the first question we can ask is, what's different now then? If, If I claim to be a child of God, the redeemed, what is actually different in my life because I'm redeemed? And so a question you could ask underneath that is, is actually a prayer. God, where am I still living in captivity, not freedom? What parts of me are still not redeemed, God? And the pursuit is very important here in that question and in how to answer that question and how to, how to discern our redemption, basically, and what still needs to be redeemed. Our dog is a squirrel chaser. I, about six o'clock in the morning, she wants to go chase squirrels. I put her out for like two hours every morning. Those squirrels have her going for like two hours, just around the yard, as fast as possible, tail wagging, couldn't be happier. The pursuit is all she's interested in. Where am I still held captive? We can recognize that sometimes our pursuit goes towards different things with all of our energy to things other than what God has in store for us. But if we're children of God, if we're living as the redeemed, yes, we can do all kinds of other things in this life, but our full energy is going to be devoted to glorifying God with everything we do as the redeemed. We're not going to be diverted from that attention. And so sometimes we can be held by the weight of captivity and not even realize it, but we have to ask this question, we have to pray the prayer, we have to say, God, where am I still held captive so that we can discern what it is that God still needs to change within us. We're challenged at regular intervals, I think, in our redemption. We can go, we can be in the the workplace, and we can go to uh, the cubicle of, of one of our coworkers that we need to work with, who for whatever reason HR has just not ever addressed the images that they have as their screensaver or in the garage? Are we the redeemed in those moments when we encounter that? What do we do in those moments? We can, are we the redeemed when somebody comes with gossip and rumors? It's pretty juicy. Do we know what to do with it as the redeemed? Do we feast on it and spread it? Or do we say, you know what, I think I better go talk to that person. I don't think that's right. I'm not going to talk about them in this instant, instance. How about when you're on the job and you're working with somebody or you're uh, working with somebody on the phone you know, for an insurance call or something like that, calling in for something you need to follow up on, and it's just not going well. Or the boss asks you to do something and it's just not what you wanted to do. And as they walk away, are our thoughts redeemed about that person? Are the things we want to mumble under our breath the words of the redeemed? We're challenged at regular intervals about if we're going to operate as those who are children of God, not held captive, but actually free as the redeemed. Jesus redeemed us to be children living under the guidance of the Father, not under the guidance of anybody else. 
The second thing I would add to this is who do you know that still needs this freedom? Maybe you're sitting here in the room and say, I don't know this freedom. Today's a great day. Let's, let's find it. Let's, let's enter into that freedom today. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, uh, and we could ask it this way, who are the Jews or Gentiles I know in my life who don't have this freedom? See how I covered everybody? Just like Paul did? Who are the people I know that just don't know this freedom? We all know these people who, who are held captive, thinking they're free, but were actually offered freedom as children of God through Jesus and Jesus alone, not bondage. And so as you think about that, I'm, I'm encouraging you to do this really every week until the end of the year. Take one of these cards that's in your pew. It says our service time on the back. Invite somebody to hear the good news. Invite someone to join us and come in so that they can experience God's freedom. If you believe it's in this place, if you believe they can find it here, say, will you come with me next Sunday? I carry these all the time with me. I pray that I can run into people who I can invite to church. Pray that this week. God, I don't want to be held captive, and I don't want my friends, co-workers, and relationships to be held captive. Who needs to come and be free to be redeemed? Let's pray together. Lord, may we be captivated only by your presence, only for glorifying you and your name. May we be your children and not be deceived by any substitutes along the way, not be deceived by any shortcuts that would promise us that we're your children, but we just don't have to change a thing when actually, God, you're saying, I want to renovate your heart and change you so that you're my child through and through, so that you represent the family wherever you go. Lord, make us those redeemed people, not people trying to be our best now, but your best for eternity, God. For those who are sitting in the room, God, who don't know that freedom and are saying, how do I grasp on? God, send your Holy Spirit on them. And if you're in that position right now, wanting that freedom, ask. God, give me the freedom to be your redeemed. Forgive me so that I can be your child. If you're feeling distant from God this morning, Ask the same thing. God, where am, where am I still unredeemed? What is still holding me in bondage? Hold your hands out and just hand it over. Lord, may the joy of you be what comes out of us as your children. You're redeemed. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>